Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanek with Figured Out Baseball. We've got a great Figured Out Baseball podcast today. We have a return to the program. It's Jason Burke uh, who's joining us, I believe, for the third time today. He is the head coach at Lander University, uh, Division II school in South Carolina. Uh, I'll give you a quick background on Coach Burke before we jump into questions with him. Uh, in case you haven't heard the other couple of podcasts or just in case you want to be refreshed on uh, just you know what he's done and, and why we should be listening to him exactly. <laughs> Hopefully he'll prove that to you in this podcast. But uh, he started his playing career at Lander University, um, finished his playing career at Southern Wesleyan, and graduated in 2004. Uh, since then, he has been coaching from uh, 2006 on. In his coaching career, he's had 15 total pitchers who have signed pro contracts, which is a pretty darn good number, and uh, you know, he hasn't been in college coaching for that long. Uh, 2006 and 2007, he was an assistant coach at Wofford College. Uh, his 2007 team won the conference tournament, went to an NCAA regional. He then bounced to Gardner-Webb. He was at Gardner-Webb uh, Division I school in North Carolina from 2008 until 2011. The 2011 team went to the conference championship game and finished with the top 100 RPI for the first time in school history. That year, the team uh, won 34 games. That was the most wins since the team had transitioned to Division I. They also tied a school record that year with 16 saves. Coach Burke got his master's degree from Gardner-Webb in sports science while he was there coaching. Uh, he then went back to Wofford, where he was an assistant coach from 2012 until 2016. In that period of time, uh, he had seven pitchers that he coached or recruited who were drafted. Uh, and it's a, just a quick note, there have only been 16 players drafted in Wofford's history and again, seven of those were pitchers that Coach Burke either coached or recruited in his time at Wofford. Uh, he had four pitchers chosen to the all-conference team in his time at Wofford. In 2012, they had uh, one pitcher who set a school record with 107 strikeouts in the season. The team that year had a 4.79 ERA. That was the lowest team ERA since 1983. In 2012, the pitchers set a school record with 416 total strikeouts. You'll hear that theme come up quite a bit with Coach Burke. Uh, they had a 255 opponent batting average that year, the lowest since Wofford went Division I. They also had a pitcher that year drafted in the 15th round. 2013, they had, uh, the pitchers at Wofford struck out 448 hitters, another new school record. They had a pitcher that year drafted in the 36th round. In 2014, they set a new school record with 32 wins. That was the first winning season at Wofford since 1992. In 2014, the team led the conference with 496 strikeouts, another new school record. They were seventh in the country that year in strikeouts per nine. In 2015, the team won 39 games, establishing another school record, which I believe still stands today. Uh, they finished second in the conference with 503 strikeouts, another new school record. They had a pitcher that year that led the conference with 10 wins. They had a pitcher that year drafted in the seventh round. And in the 29th round, the seventh rounder was the highest draft pick from Wofford since 2007. Uh, the 29th rounder actually set the school record that year with 15 saves. That was the first time ever Wofford had two players selected in the same draft. In 2016, that was Coach Burke's last season at Wofford. The team won 30 games for the third uh, consecutive year of 30-plus wins. They finished second in the conference again with 470 strikeouts. Coach Burke coached the pitcher who led the conference with 103 strikeouts that year. That guy was a 29th-round pick. Uh, Coach Burke also let, uh, coached the guy who led the conference in saves. That guy was a sixth-round draft pick, the highest draft pick out of Wofford since 1983. That was the second time ever that Wofford had two guys selected in the same draft 
and both were in back-to-back -back years. Both and all four of those guys were pitchers. Uh, coach Burke was named the head coach at Lander University officially uh, in August 2016. Uh, last year, 2019, they had 12 players named to the academic all-conference team. They had two pitchers selected in the draft this past year, an 18th rounder and a 26th rounder. Those are only the ninth and the 10th draft picks in Lander history. Uh, they've also, uh, the 26th rounder was a converted third baseman catcher, which is a cool thing that we can get into in a little bit. Uh, this will be Jason Burke's fourth season leading Lander. Uh, Coach Burke, appreciate you being here, man. Happy to be here, Jeff. Um, always enjoy doing these and looking forward to uh, diving into a little pitching stuff with you. All right. Well Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, today, if you've listened to the first couple podcasts with Coach Burke, we've talked uh, about, you know, mostly about pitching, some about recruiting. We've kind of, uh, you know, gone around some different topics. Today, I'd like to get a little more specific with you if we can. I think the, you know, listeners that have listened to you in the past will really be hungry to get a little more in-depth, uh, a little more specific with some things. So uh, today, what do you think about just talking development? If we can kind of get into how you develop pitchers when they're on campus, um, you know, some specific things that you're trying to do during different times of the year. Uh, you know, one of the most intriguing things to me is always the number of draft picks that, that guys produce that were not drafted out of high school that obviously had a lot of development at your program. And I believe that all 15 guys that you've had drafted, none of none of whom have been drafted, were drafted out of high school. Am I correct on that? You are correct. I, uh, I enjoy that part of my job so much and you know, I think it's really, really cool to, you know, help someone get to where they want to get to. And, you know, obviously I want to win games, I want to win championships, just like every coach does. But, you know, I think, you know, ultimately these kids' dream is to play professionally and get to the big leagues. And, you know, if you can help foster that while winning games, that's obviously a win-win for everyone. Yeah. And most of the places you've been, the draft success has come on the mound. Um, so it, it's, you know, pretty evident that you haven't had an issue developing pitchers, uh, which is kind of really what I, what I want to get into. So um, you kind of mentioned before we started recording here that, you know, a couple of things that you feel like are, are some of your real strengths are developing velocity, uh, developing spin, which is another way to say, you know, developing breaking balls uh, with pitchers and also just integrating tech uh, into, you know, what you're doing with your guys. Any of those particular places where you'd like to start? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, velocity is, is kind of where I start, and a lot of people, you know, tap me as a velo guy, and they're like, hey, like, you know, if you want to throw harder, go pitch for Coach Burke, right? If you don't throw hard, he's not going to pitch you. You know, I, I hear that a lot, you know, in the recruiting battles and, you know, just from my players in general, um, you know, they'll come to visit and they'll be like, yeah, the reason I came is because so-and-so told me you'll help me throw harder. Um, you know, really, to be honest with you, I think teaching someone to throw harder is the quickest way to a pitcher's heart. You know, if you – add velocity to them, a lot of times I feel like they'll listen to anything else you tell them. Um, you know, so that's kind of where I start with things most of the time. You know, to me, velocity is a math problem. It's momentum, rotational power, and sequencing. And I'm just looking for the hole in those three. 
once I find a hole in those three, we just try to attack that hole as opposed to, you know, obviously just coaching just to coach and, you know, kind of throwing stuff up on the wall and seeing what sticks. You know, we try to focus on the one of those three with every single pitcher. One of those three meaning of the, the momentum, rotational power, and sequence. Yeah, so like if a kid is lacking being able to produce momentum on the mound, then we coach almost all momentum with that pitcher. If his sequencing off, then obviously we coach mechanics more than anything. Okay. Let's talk about those a little bit. Let's start with sequencing just because it's it's mechanical mostly. Um, if you when – you're, when you're going out, let's start with kind of a, what you're seeing from these guys before they get on campus. Uh, you know, typical high school kids – uh, what would be – is there anything that you can point to in particular that would lead a kid who maybe doesn't have an opportunity to either get lessons or doesn't have a great coach that he's working with? Are, are there any things that um, – like if a player's doing this, he probably has sequencing problems. Or if, a play, if you see this or if he's having some kind of pain, is there anything in particular that I hope you can maybe point to that a kid might be able to self-diagnose yeah. and realize he's got some sequencing issues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, to me it all starts with the first move. Um, you know, if your lower body is messed up, then your body's just going to compensate in, in everything else. So, like, if you don't get the back foot right, so for a right-handed pitcher, the right foot, right leg, stability leg, whatever you want to call it. If you don't get that part right, then everything else is going to suffer because of it. And, you know, so what I'm looking for in that regard is, you know, I call it growing roots. You know, can we grow roots through the ground with our back leg, with our back foot, stay stable on that back leg, and keep that contraction of the back leg as long as possible? And, you know, that really – is how you utilize your legs, in my opinion. Um, you know, that is momentum. You see kids all the time, on, especially on social media, and they're doing running drills. And they're posting these videos of themselves throwing, you know, whatever, 90, 95, 100 miles per hour when they're full sprint, you know, and let it eat. <laughs> you know, and I, like, it's not that I disagree or agree with running guns. You know, I think a lot of people have really strong opinions about them. You know, but to me, it's an assessment tool. It's not a training tool most of the time. Um, you know, the only time I would use that as a training tool is when a kid is really having trouble with intent. Like, they're having trouble letting it eat. They're having trouble, you know, being able to try to throw hard, which is, to me, is not that that often. I think intent-based training does have some merit, but I don't think it's as important as a lot of people pan it out to be nowadays. Um, so, anyway. What I'm looking for in the running gun is, is there a gap? So if you're a guy that is a running gun guy and you're 90 on the running gun, but on the mound you're 78 miles per hour, well, you have a momentum issue. You know, you're creating great momentum in the running gun. You're not creating any momentum on the mound. So to me it's all about creating that momentum on the mound. Most of the time that is a back leg issue. Um, you know, and, and obviously it kind of ties into the sequencing. I mean, that was the, the original question. But, you know, the sequencing is only jacked up because you don't have momentum. Um, you know, you don't have momentum because you get up on your quad really quick instead of getting into your hamstring and your, and your butt muscle. Um, or, or you get up on your toe, which results in the same thing. You're going to get on your quad. Um, you know, so to me, that I teach that really more than anything I teach um, all throughout. I mean, you know, that one of the kids that I coach is in the big leagues now, and you know, he had a buddy of his that struggles with that that's in a minor league organization. And, you know, the, kid, the 
the kid in the big leagues called me. He's like, hey, if this kid that I throw with that's in double A is willing to call you and FaceTime and, you know, willing to come down here and throw with you, man, will you teach him how to translate his momentum to the mound? I was like, dude, I'll try my tail off, man. Like, I got no issues with that whatsoever. And, you know, I watched one video, and the kid's up on his toes super-duper quick. And, you know, I just kept sending him video reviews or whatever. And, you know, then I sent him still shots of him and the big leaguer that he throws with. And I'm like, look, man, like, here's every position that you're in and every position that he's in. You tell me who stays into their back butt muscle longer, him or you. And he was like, well, we're both in it at the beginning. Then I lose it. And he stays in it. I go, yeah, man, and you run and gun about five miles per hour harder than him, but he throws about four or five miles per hour harder than you in the game. And that's why he's in the big leagues and you're in double A. Um, you know, so I think getting the kids to buy into it, that's a grown man, but getting a kid to buy into this is what's real, it doesn't take a lot of time. And, you know, I, I do think that's why I've had a lot of success teaching velocity is – you know, the formula makes sense to these guys. You know, they, they they see it for the first time and they don't maybe they don't quite understand it and then all of a sudden they watch it on one kid, even if it's not them, and they're like, Yeah, he's probably close to right. I'm not saying I got it all figured out. But like, you know, they're like, Man, if I get good momentum, if I get rotational power and I can sequence my delivery, yeah, I'm gonna throw harder. And you know, what I what I see most of the time is when they do those three things, they're healthier too. So, like, it's not a sacrifice health for velocity, whereas some of these intent-only, intent-based-only programs, that's what it is. You're sacrificing health for velocity. Um, you know, I feel like your body and your mind are going to find a way to get to where you want it to go if you want to get on the mound and pitch. So if you're trying to get to 85, I feel like you're going to figure out a way to get to 85, even if it's not the best way. And it may end up getting you hurt if you feel like you have to get to that number. Same thing with 90, 95, 100, whatever. Obviously, everybody's got a cap at some point. Um, but I do think that, you know, teaching velocity first and making sure they under, understand the math equation for how to get there is very, very important. Sorry, I'm taking some notes because i got a bunch of questions. You know what, when we have these. That was a lot of info. That was a lot. And you know when we talk, I'm not I'm not a pitching guy, so a lot of times I probably have a lot of the questions that a lot of people listening to this do, and um, and you just buzz right through things like it's <laughs> like it's nothing for you, which is great. It's great, but I need to stop you a couple times. Um, okay, so sequencing. If a guy's having trouble with sequencing and doesn't have the great, uh, somebody really great to work with, uh, what's the best way to fix that? I mean, is it should he take some video of himself and compare it to some big leaguers? Are there some drills that, that a guy can do that will sort of clean things up naturally for him? Or, or uh, is, is there a way to do that without being with someone like Jason Burke, you know, being actually like FaceTiming with someone like you? How does a guy fix that up? Cause, and, I'll, and I'll go back to this, and I'll, I want to say this to you. In high school, I took lessons from minor league pitchers, and I was the primary position player. But in a running gun, by the way, when we're talking about a running gun for anyone that's listening to this, that's, those are the videos you're seeing where a guy is, you know, taking like basically five or six sprint steps and then he's doing like an enormous crow hop and he's throwing and like, you know, doing a flip in the air and, and whatever, like totally maxing out velocity. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the running gun. Um, in, in high school, I, my running gun velocity was significantly better than it was off the mound. I threw really hard from the outfield. I did not throw particularly hard from the mound, but I went to 
minor leaguers in the offseason for pitching lessons. And obviously there were things there that didn't get cleaned up that they weren't seeing or whatever. So if you're talking to someone like me in high school who's having those kind of issues, is there something, what, what can I do about it? What can be done? Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. I and mean, I think, you know, the first thing that I would do, and nowadays anybody can do it because every single phone has one on it, is I would set my phone up and I would video myself. Um, you know, and and general rule of thumb. Now, I'm, some people are going to get mad at me for saying this, and that's okay. But general rule of thumb is if you're doing something that you can't find a lot of big leaguers doing, you, it's probably not good. Um, you know, and I'm all about an outlier. Um, you know, I think outliers get outs. You know, different gets outs. Um, but I think when people say that, they're not saying that from a mechanical standpoint. They're saying that from a, and I don't want to get too nerdy, but they're saying that from a data standpoint. They're saying that, you know, different gets outs. Your curveball is different for whatever reason. The spin rate, the vertical break, whatever. Your fastball is different because of that. Like, they're not saying that because you have different mechanics than right the majority of big leaguers. So that, that's the first thing I would do is just compare it to a plethora of big leaguers, not one. Um, you know, compare it to dudes that have been throwing hard and been healthy um, for the most part. You know, like a Scherzer's been healthy for the most part, a Verlander, um, you know, very, very different guys. And they've both been healthy. Garrett Cole so far, pretty healthy. Um, you know, I think Nolan Ryan, um, you know, those dudes, that have been healthy and sustained it for a, for a long time. You know, compare your delivery to those guys, and if you see major differences, then that's probably the first thing I would look at. The second thing I would do is, is what I said earlier. You know, you, you got to start with the foundation. You would never build a house and start with the roof. Um, you know, if the foundation is not good, which is the back leg, then everything else is going to suffer from it. Um, you know, if your back leg kicks out, your back knee kicks out over your front foot really, really hard, then, yeah, you're going to get on your toe and you're going to get quad dominant very, very quick. Um, you know, you can make drills up to, to help that. Um, anything that keeps your back foot in the ground longer will help that. Um, you know, you can stick a rock up underneath your cleat and try to keep pressure on that rock for an extended period of time. It doesn't take fancy, fancy toys to be able to do that, even though they are pretty cool to have. Um, you know, a drill that I do a lot of times to help with that is I'll get a guy at the bottom of the mound as opposed to where the rubber is, and I'll have them jump back with both feet, land on their back leg only, and then just throw. Um, you know, it seems like a very simple drill, right? Like, but it, but it forces you to feel your back foot completely engage the ground because when you land from the jump, you can only land on that one foot and you're on a slope, so you have to stabilize. And, and again, when I describe it that way, it sounds a little more complicated, but literally all I'm asking them to do is stand at the bottom of the slope, jump with both feet back, land on one foot and throw. Facing <laughs> what direction? If you're a right-handed pitcher, you're, you're standing on yeah, two feet facing third base, yeah, yep, facing so like, third base dugout. Yep, just stand just like you would on the mound. Like come set just like you would on the mound, right. face, facing third base. The catcher's obviously in front of you. You're just going to jump back a foot, two foot. There's no real okay. distance that I try to get, um, which will force you to be slightly on the slope. Um, and then when you land, just land on your right leg, which is your stability leg, and then just throw. Um, you know, I think it forces you to feel yourself absorb the ground. Um, you know, it's, to me, it's really simple. Anything 
that forces you to utilize the ground more is probably a good drill for the beginning of your sequencing. And the way that I'll teach it at a camp or at a clinic, when I'm doing it, is I'm like, hey, how many of you guys squat? How many of you guys front squat? How many of you guys deadlift? Try to do that without using the ground. And they all look at me like I'm crazy, and I'm like, you can't. So, like, when you guys just try to, like, step, rotate, and throw, you're losing the biggest part of your delivery. Um, and then I usually say this analogy. I usually say, hey, man, what's your name? And they'll say, my name's Jeff Stanning. And I'll say, okay, Jeff, if I was going to give you a million dollars, if you could throw this ball 90 miles per hour up against that wall right now, what would you do? And most of them give the same answer in a little bit different way. They go, well, I'd probably get some type of running start, crow hop something. I'd rotate really hard, not trying to throw the crap out of it. Well, that's exactly the math formula to throw harder, momentum, rotational see, rotational power, and sequencing. Like, it's not that I've got this crazy math problem that other people don't have. It's just I try to keep it insanely simple in those three ways and literally just find your leak. Okay. So your leak, when you're talking about that, that's you're trying to find a hole in the mechanics somewhere, a hole in the sequencing that's yeah. keeping you from – just maxing out, like you're talking about with that minor league. Yeah. Yep, so I'll give you a great example. Um, I'll give you a couple examples. So in the catcher convert kid, Ryan Trauma was drafted for us last year. Um, he could run a gun at over 100 miles per hour. But he, he had, until last year, he had never hit over 91 on the mound. And he was consistently 86, 88. Well, that's a major gap. Anything that's more than five to six miles per hour, I would consider a momentum leak. The bigger the gap, the bigger the leak. So we just kept trying to teach him momentum, which had a little bit of sequencing in it because it was a lot of back leg and a lot of drive and, you know, how to stay in your back hip longer. Like, you know, they, they blend into each other a little bit. But anyway, we just kept teaching him on that, and eventually he figured it out. I don't take one bit of credit for Ryan Troutman. I didn't figure out anything. I just gave him the information, and he was able to continually try different things and not worry about failure and eventually figured it out by the end of his senior season, which was two years into pitching. He was 92, 95 with a really fresh arm, and almost every single pro team wanted to watch him. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's not always that simple, okay? So then, you know, I got another kid on my team right now that has, you know, problems rotating properly. And I would say that that is rare, but I do get it. Um, and what I mean by that is he just doesn't have a lot of, you know, hip mobility, T-spine mobility, um, which is, you know, the flexibility in his back and his hips. Um, you know, he strides across his body a little bit, so therefore it cuts off his hips from finishing. So, like, I coached that kid completely different than I coached Ryan Troutman. Um, you know, I coached that kid on rotational stuff, not on momentum stuff. And maybe when we fixed all the rotation, maybe his running gun will jump, and I'll be like, okay, now we got to work on momentum. Um, you know, but I don't know that until we fix what I would consider his biggest leak. Um, you know, a guy who has problems sequencing. You know, it's not always a lower body issue. You know, maybe he has an arm action deficiency to where he can't get his arm, you know, close to his head to be able to rotate and let his arm action work right. So that would be a timing issue or a sequencing issue. And I would coach his arm action a little more. Maybe I'd get him with some weighted balls and, you know, try to force his hand to get connected better or get his arm closer to his head before he rotates that way his sequencing or timing is a little bit better so like you know it's never it's it's never the same thing but it's it's always that hunt for hey this is going to help this kid 
and this is going to help this kid. And I don't know exactly what's going to click for Ryan Troutman to let him feel that rotation or that momentum, but I'm going to keep giving him things over and over and over again and let him explore, self-explore, and figure out, okay, this is feeling good. This feels like I'm producing more force. Um, you know, we're not fortunate enough to have force plate mounds or anything like that at Lander. Um, you know, if we did, it'd be really cool, but we don't. Um, you know, so, like, we're just a little bit of trial and error in that regard of what works and what feels right to you. Okay. Um, I, I want to go back to something you talked about, just about taking some video of yourself and comparing it, you know, to some big leaguers. And if you're doing things that you don't see big leaguers doing, like if you compare yourself to multiple big leaguers and you don't see any of them doing what you're doing, you're probably doing something wrong. And I want to kind of compare it to hitters, which I'm more familiar with, because there are – when you look at major league hitters, there are some absolutes, but there are some things that are done differently between different major leaguers based on the type of hitter that they are. Um, so, you know, I'm a Pirates fan. I'm from, you know, from uh, living out to Pennsylvania right now. The Pirates had a, a, a rookie last year, Kevin Newman, their shortstop, his first rounder out of Arizona. Um, you know, he's a guy that's, he, he led the Cape in college, he led the Cape in batting average twice. I think he hit 330 something as a, as a rookie. Um, you know, he's a, he's a guy that's just – he's going to try to hit uh, for a high average. He's going to try to split the gaps, going to try to run a little bit. You know, he you're going to find some differences mechanically with him than you are, you know, Joey Gallo or, or somebody that's trying to hit 50 homers and, and, you know, if he hits 220, so be it. Uh, is it the same with pitching or do you, do you generally – I mean, will a different – I don't want to talk about like a sub guy, submarine guy, but I'm talking about guys that throw from relatively the same arm slots – Will you see different mechanics from different guys who are, you know, maybe a guy that, that throws 100 compared to a guy that throws 92 that's trying to create extra movement? Or are, are pitching-wise, are their mechanics basically going to be the same? I would say they're basically going to be the same. Um, you know, they're going to get in very similar positions with their lower body, very similar positions with their hips. Um, you know, their lead leg is going to do very similar things. The biggest difference I think you're going to find is in their arm action, which would kind of be like a bat path, I guess. Um, and and you're going to find differences in their slots. So, like, you know, to me, you know, if, if we're only talking arm action, you know, really what you're trying to do is you're trying to get your arm in a good place for your body to rotate and to kind of slingshot it through the zone as opposed to create your own arm speed. Um, you know, so, like, guys get that in position in different ways. And a lot of times guys are like, man, that guy's completely different than him because of X. You know, and I saw a – I can't remember who the two pitchers were in it. Scherzer was one of them. I can't remember the other one off the top of my head. But I saw a tweet the other day, and I was like, man, this is a really good tweet. Um, it had Scherzer, and it had somebody else at the higher slot, maybe Verlander, maybe Strasburg. I can't remember. And it was showing that their deliveries were unbelievably similar until their arm – you know, shot to its slot where Scherzer's slot was really low. And it was the point the tweet was making, um, which was opinionative and probably take some people off, is like, you know, it was saying, you know, throw from a higher slot, get on top of the ball. You know, coaches that say that would never say that to Max Scherzer. And, you know, yeah, they probably wouldn't. But, like, he got to that position in a very similar way to the guy that was a higher slot. He just happened to slingshot or vault or whatever word you want to use his arm action to the slot that was more comfortable for him. Um, so, in short, you know, your answer to hitting 
or your question to pitching about hitting is, yeah, man, I think hitters are a little bit different, more different than pitchers are. Um, but ultimately, I do think there's some differences in how guys attack the ball with their bat path, just like there are differences in the arm action and how they attack that. But for the most part, from take the arm out of it, going yeah, from the legs similar. legs up through the core, up through even yeah. shoulders, you're going to see mostly most, most very, things going to be the same. Yes, very, very similar. I mean, the only, the only thing that I would say that's going to be different, and I think it's really easy for anybody, high school, college, a coach, whoever's listening to this podcast, is so like a lot of times everybody teaches everybody that you have to stride straight. I do not believe that. Um, you know, you look at someone like a Scherzer, um, you know, he strides across his body pretty hard, but his hips are very, very effective. Um, what I think is a very quick, easy way to test that is literally how you sit. So like if I was to sit in a chair, I would sit like with my knees on top of my knees. So like I would not sit like the like the the big macho dude that barely puts his foot on top of his knee and makes like a figure four. I would sit more like a woman that's wearing a skirt. Um, you know, where I'm covering my kneecap with my other with my other knee if that makes sense. Okay. So like my my, my hips are very internal. Okay. So like I can scroll my body and get away with it because my hips work like that. Um, somebody who cannot sit like I sit and has to sit the other way, they cannot stride across their body. Their hips are very external. So they're externally rotated, and if they stride six inches across their body, it's going to completely torture their hips. It's going to hurt their low back, <laughs> and they're probably going to suffer velocity, command stuff, everything because of that. So, like, you know, that's not the end-all, be-all, obviously, that quick test I just gave you right there, but it's an easy way that anybody without any technology, any knowledge of the hips can figure out, okay, this kid could probably get away with striding across his body. I wouldn't teach him to stride across his body, but it's something that I would not teach someone out of if their hips are internally rotated to where I could land six, eight inches across my body and my hips still work fine all the way across. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you something that I used to hear out recruiting uh, you know, I heard it a couple times, and, you know, when I recruited pitchers, I I had, a, I had a hard time, you know, really getting specific about mechanics. I could pick out some things that I thought were going to maybe be an injury waiting to happen, but I think that I was pretty good at just seeing whether a guy had a good sequence, if it just worked to me. I don't know how else to say it. If it just If, if the body worked and it was loose and the arm was loose, and, you know, he could do some different things with the ball. I, I kind of knew what I wanted to recruit that way. But, other, you know, I, I really couldn't get super, super specific. Uh, but there was one pitcher that I can remember that I recruited. He's from Tennessee. He actually went to play at uh, – he turned us down and went out to play at Wichita State. Um, when, he, when his stride foot landed, it landed opened if that makes sense. So he was right-handed, and when he landed, instead of his toe pointing slightly toward the third base side, his toe was open, so it was pointing slightly toward the first base foul line, if that makes sense. Um, and, and the scout that I was with in this particular day said that was like one thing that he looked at with every pitcher, and, and he I think he was a scout for the Mariners or something, and, and he was like, I would never sign a guy that that landed like that. And to me, you're like, well, he was about 6'4", about 220 pounds. 
he was in high school throwing 88 to 90 with a pretty good breaking ball. Like I figured I'm probably going to take him. You know, I, I don't know. I don't really know what that means. I don't know why his foot's laying like that. And so I guess my question is going to come back to, uh, is that something that would be an, an injury? Is that something that, that is probably because of, uh, I'm sure you've seen that. Is that something because of flexibility? And is that something that is a really big issue? I, I don't think it's a really big issue. Um, you know, I think it gets back to what do you trust yourself or your staff, if it's a pitcher and you're a hitting guy, to, to fix and develop. Um, you know, I think there's two different ways to recruit, and I'll get back and I'll talk about this front foot flying open issue in just a second. Um, but are you looking for a guy that can come in and pitch immediately and give you four years worth of innings? Or are you looking for a guy that you're looking for the long term and trying to develop? Um, you know, if you're looking for a guy that you want to pitch for four years and maybe the ceiling's not quite as high, but he's going to get innings every year, you know, I think they, it's got to be a cleaner delivery. There, there can't be tons of major cleanup that you're going to have to do with that kid, or you're not going to get four years out of him. Um, you know, the, the same with the other way. If you're looking for a kid that, you know, you're looking for high end and you're like, man, like we can't recruit the kid that's already 92, 93 miles per hour, we got to find the kid that can get there. You're probably going to get a kid that you've got to clean up some things to get him there, and it's going to take a little bit of time, and you may not get the two solid years of innings and performance out of him. Um, so I think it gets back to what you're going to recruit, and obviously I think if you're looking to max out and you're looking to win championships, I think it's got to be a combination of both. I, I don't think at any level you can recruit that, that same kid over and over again. If I was Vanderbilt who just won the national title, I think Vandy's still taking some risk on cleanup kids. They're just taking a risk on a cleanup kid that can throw 100 instead of a kid that can throw 92. <laughs> um, you know, that's the difference. But I don't think you can recruit all kids that are ready to throw four straight years at Vandy. I just don't think that's realistic. Um, so anyway, um, to get back to your original question about the front foot flying open, um, to me that instantly tells me he's an externally rotated hip kid. It would be, you know, this kid can't stride across his body any. Um, that would be the first thing that would pop in my head, right, wrong, and different, whatever, um, and get away with it because his hips won't work properly. The second thing I would think about it is, okay, this kid is obviously flying open with his foot, which your foot is probably going to lead your, your leg all the way up to your femur and, and on up, and it's probably going to lead to his hips opening up early. So where that scout is probably right is, you know, if his lead foot is opening up, his arm is probably not in a very good position for his upper body rotation, which is going to be a red flag for an arm injury, whether it be shoulder, elbow, whatever. And, and there's a lot of other factors that would go into that. So, like, you know, I video every single recruit that I have any interest in whatsoever, and I get asked all the time, you know, hey, Burton, do you really think you can see stuff when you're videoing these kids in a high school or a travel ball game? And the answer is yes, or I wouldn't waste my time. But, like, that's, that's what I'm looking for is how many red flags – does this kid have? And if there's a kid that's 88 to 90 that's got four or five different red flags, I'm probably going to pass on him, whereas a school that maybe is bigger and better than me right now might go after him if they don't see or believe in those same red flags. And it's not that I know that the kid's going to have arm issues or whatever. It's that, to me, it's a calculated risk, just like any business decision, um, you know, and I'm not willing to take the risk. Um, you know, so would I recruit a kid that's front foot flies open like that? Yeah, depending on the other things. If he has five other things that scare me, probably not. If he has one or two 
and I'm looking for a guy that, you know, I can't normally get those, that velocity out of high school, um, yeah, absolutely I would take the risk and trust that I could help that kid develop that and pitch, you know, with maybe the externally rotated hips because there's plenty of big leaguers that have externally rotated hips. Um, you know, Justin Verlander is the first one that comes to mind. He doesn't land open like that, but his hips are very externally rotated. Um, so, like, I don't think that's an issue necessarily. I just think it's something that you would have to fix and probably have to fix pretty quick to help the kid have the best chance of staying healthy. Okay. Um, I guess my next question is, let me get back to, I still want to stick to the first three things you mentioned. Like, I, I kind of want to uh, keep the conversation as much as possible around momentum, rotational power, and sequencing, which I think is where it all started and probably where it all really begins for pitchers. But I do want to ask you, as a coach, you feel pretty confident in your ability to to, uh, to coach pitchers. Is there is there anything you think that cannot be taught? I don't think there's anything that cannot be taught. I really don't. I think I think you can fix really anything that you really want to fix. Um, you know, some people say you can't change arm actions. I've had plenty of success helping kids change arm actions. Um, Nolan Ryan, if you YouTube Nolan Ryan's pitching career, and it'll show you his arm action from day one in the big leagues all the way with the Rangers at the end, and you'll see mammoth differences in his arm action. Um, you know, uh, there's things that I've had no success fixing before. Um, you know, again, I said it earlier, I don't, I don't even pretend to have it all figured out. And, you know, if you and I did this same podcast in two years, hopefully mine would be different. Hopefully I will have learned things and fixed things and apologize to pitchers for, for messing it up <laughs> and not getting it right with them. Um, you know, but, but I, I mean, there's, I think there's certain things that every pitching coach can and can't do. Um, you know, there's, you know, when, when I leave a pitching staff, whether it's leaving Gardner-Webber, leaving Walford, the new guy that takes over, you know, they're better than me at things. Um, you know, and I told that pitching staff at Walford and Gardner-Webb, hey, like, you know, you guys are acting like you're all sad that I'm leaving. The fact of the matter is this is good for some of y'all. Like, this is really good for some of y'all. Like, whoever they hire is going to be really, really, really good at teaching you something that I'm not. Um, you know, and I think it's it's okay and it's it's good to be self-aware of what you are and aren't good at teaching. Um, you know, a great example of that is there's a guy on Twitter that it's called Location Nation. Um, he's known for helping kids throw more strikes, helping kids locate the ball better. Um, you know, he believes in location over velocity, um, and that's fine. And, and, you know, he was giving away free e-guides to help kids over the break. It was Christmas night or New Year's night. I can't remember when it was. And I direct messaged the guy, and I was like, hey, man, I've had a lot of success teaching kids how to throw a lot harder. Like, I haven't had a lot of success teaching guys how to command the ball a lot better. Like, yeah, man, like, does this free giveaway go to, go to coaches? <laughs> and and he, he DM'd me right back, and he's like, I'm sending it right now. You know, thanks for thanks for wanting one. Um, you know, so I think, you know, I'm diving into that right now. There's some really good stuff in it. You know, I think that, you know, understanding what you're good at or what your staff is good at if you're a hitting guy recruiting it, I think it's huge. Um, you know, to dive into the personal development for each pitcher, if there's pitchers listening to this right now, high school age or college age or whatever, you know, I think understanding who you are and what you need to work on is important. Um, I think understanding your stuff is important. Um, understanding how to utilize your stuff is important. Um, you know, I think if you don't do that, I think you're 
really handicapping your development because you don't understand where you're at to begin with. And if you don't understand where you're at to begin with, I don't really know how you could continue to get better. Um, so I don't know if that directly answers your question, Jeff, but that, you know, that would be the way that, that I would go about it. It does, because I, uh, I just, uh, you know, I go back to my coaching career and just things were a lot different then. We, there wasn't nearly, it wasn't that long ago, but the technology has exploded, you know, since, uh, really since I got out of coaching and after the 2014 season until right now, there's just, there's so much more available that it's a lot less guesswork. And so one of the things, again, that I would hear a lot as a, as a recruiter is that you can't teach a kid to spin it. He can either spin it or he can't. Like you, you cannot teach a kid you can maybe tighten some things up with the breaking ball, but a kid that just has a, a horseshit breaking ball, like you're not going to teach him a really good, usable swing and miss breaking ball. But, again, that was one of the things that you said before we even started the podcast, before we started recording, is that you've had a lot of success teaching that. Have you, you know, have you kind of disproved that theory? Have you brought kids in before? And I mean, and I'm not talking about a kid who maybe had a loopy breaking ball that you tightened up or a kid that had never thrown a slider that maybe, maybe that, maybe we could talk about that. A kid that has never thrown a slider that you taught one. Have you had success working with a kid who, before he got to you, it, you know, the, the, um, the notes on him where he can't spin, it doesn't have a good, it doesn't have a breaking ball and you were able to teach him one. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, I think, like I said, I don't think there's anything that's not teachable. I think there's people who can't teach things. Okay. <laughs> you know, like, like, like that's the best way I can say it. And I know that sounded like a complete jerk comment. To some no, because you've said that. you've said in this uh, on this podcast there are things that you're not good at. It just that is what it is. Yeah, that's like, a good I, way to I, see I, it. Yeah, like uh, there's a kid I'm recruiting right now at the break, and I just flat out asked him two days ago. I said, hey, dude, and I'm not going to say his name on this, but hey, dude, like I'm going to tell you what I'm good at. You tell me what you're not good at, why you're leaving this school. And if they don't match, then let's just go our separate ways because you're looking for somebody to help you. I'm looking for somebody that can help me. You know, like, like you know, that's, you know, that just kind of is what it is. And, you know, man, like right now I'm not good at teaching guys to command the baseball better. I'm not good at teaching guys a, a, a really good changeup or developing their changeup. Like I'm just not. And I, and, and I would never make the – the comment of, well, you just can't teach a kid a changeup just because I stink at coaching it. That's just, I stink at coaching it. You know, like, i got to get better at it. <laughs> you know, it's got nothing to do with it can't be done. So, you know, to get back to your question, you know, yeah, I've, I've definitely had success with that. Um, you know, I don't take I, I don't take credit for, for anybody's learning of a pitch or adding velocity because I, I really, truly feel like, you know, they had to do the work. All I did was give them the direction. Um, but like a kid like a Ryan Troutman, I have no idea what Ryan Troutman's curveball, slider, cutter, I don't even know what he threw when he pitched a little bit he did in high school. You know, Troutman is the catcher, third baseman, convert at Lander. Okay. Um, you know, he pitched a tiny bit in high school. If you asked him, he would probably say, including any, including any bullpens, if you want to just count 20 pitches as an inning or whatever, he would probably say he had less than the equivalent of 20 innings in his entire life pitched before he came to Lander. Um, you know, his freshman year at Lander, he played a lot of third base for the team that went to the World Series. His sophomore year, he caught over 40 games for me. Um, you know, I'd have to go back and look to see exactly, but he caught the majority of the innings for us that season. Very, very good receiver, could not hit to save his life. Um, he would tell you that it's not me being a jerk. Um you know, I recruited an All-American junior college catcher out of Hartford Community College in Maryland, 
And then I was fortunate enough to get a kid that was leaving East Carolina who ended up being very, very good for us behind the plate, and we signed them both in one year. It was not designed. It was not what we were trying to do. We were trying to get one good catcher. The ECU kid, I hate to say, kind of fell in her lap, but he kind of did. So I call Ryan Troutman up, and I tell him, hey, man, I know you caught 40 games for me last year. This is the summer before his junior year. And I tell him, hey, dude, we're going to convert you into a pitcher. And it went dead silent for about 30 to 45 seconds. I thought I was going to lose, I thought I was going to lose a player that I really, really liked and loved. Um, you know, Troutman's my boy. He was my boy back then. He's my boy now. Um, you know, it was, it was not me being mean. It was me just trying to be real with him. Um, you know, about, after about 45 seconds of silence, excuse my English, but he just said, hell yeah. <laughs> and and that, that's when I thought it was going to be good. I thought it was going to be all right. And he came in his junior year, the very next fall, and he was like 85, 88, and he was getting hit around all over the place, and he was walking a lot of dudes. And I remember sitting in my office with my assistants telling them flat out, I messed this up. Like, I messed this up. Like, he was our best defensive catcher. He had a really good arm. I thought that I could help him throw harder, and I don't know that I'm going to be able to. And and it broke my heart. Like, I remember bringing Ryan in the office and saying, hey, dude, you're probably not going to pitch a lot. And he was 85, 88, getting smoked around the yard pretty much, walking a lot of dudes. By the end of that season, he was probably 86 to 90, still getting hit a lot, still walking a lot of dudes. And I was like, well, 86 to 90 at this level unless you're dotting it and spinning it and changing it, probably ain't going to work real well. So we start working on a slider. It's not very good, to be honest with you. It's like 75 miles per hour, kind of loopy, not real good. So I'm like, okay, dude, like stop trying to make it a slider. Like just, just, just grip it like I'm telling you. Do the drills I'm telling you to do and just let it be what it wants to be. And so he starts adopting that mindset. He goes off and plays summer ball. He comes back during the fall. He had great numbers in the Coastal Plains League, so I'm thinking the kid figured it out. I'm back to being all happy and pumped for him. Hey, this kid's going to be nasty. Back to thinking I got it right and switching positions, and that's what we should have done. Um, he comes into the fall. He's like 87 to 90, still spraying it a little bit. The slider is tearing more into a cutter at that point, and it's it's hard. It's like 80 miles per hour, 82 miles per hour. And, you know, it's, it's because he believed in the drills. It's because he worked the drills. It's because he – adopted the mindset of I don't care how it breaks. I'm just going to let it be what it is right now and let my natural athleticism and what my hand naturally wants to do with the baseball do it do its thing. So he still wasn't going to pitch a line. He's getting hit when he threw strikes, and he's walking a lot of dudes. Pro scout day rolls around late in the fall. Not one dude says one thing about Ryan Troutman. Not one dude likes Ryan Troutman. Not one dude gives him a card. Not one dude gives him a letter. And we had plenty of dudes that got letters, got cards, everything. And I'm still thinking I jacked it up and messed it up. We're going to the season. He's a right-on-right matchup guy as a senior, which is not where you want to be in case you're listening to this wondering. Okay? <laughs> so he's a right-on-right matchup guy. Our closer, who was a perfect game, top 25 Division II prospect in the country, goes out there, uh, gets a big save versus Tampa, which was a huge win for our program at the time, closes out some games versus Millersville, which is also a really, really good Division II team. And, and you know, Troutman's kind of an afterthought. About two, three weeks later, that closer starts struggling. I start giving a lot of dudes opportunities back, back in the back end of the bullpen. He starts to win. He starts to get dudes out, still throwing about the same velocity. He then decides he wants to try to throw the slider as well. He's like, Coach, I want to go back to trying to throw the slider and the cutter. He gets them both kind of rolling. The slider still 75, 76-ish. The cutter is 80, 82-ish. 
Um, but he can throw them both now. He all of a sudden starts landing both of them for strikes a little bit. His confidence starts going up a little bit. He starts figuring out the momentum thing a little bit. Velocity keeps creeping, 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 creeping. I start calling pro teams, emailing pro teams, telling them they got to get in there to watch him. They start showing up, and he's 92, 95, spinning that cutter in there at 85, 87, and throwing the slider at 79 to 81. Oh, And wow. everybody wants to be like – like I had a pro scout ask me this this year about one of our other catchers. He said, why don't you just convert him into a pitcher like Troutman? You know, he's got a really good arm. And, like, I think they're halfway joking, but they're not. Like, they're like, man, like, you developed this kid into a dude and changed his life. You know, he got drafted. He would have never gotten drafted as a catcher because he couldn't hit, he couldn't run. You know, like, uh, but I don't, I don't think I did that at all. I think I gave the kid an opportunity that some people would have looked at and been like, screw you, coach. You're, you know, I caught 40 games for you last year. I'm going to come back and win that catching job or I'm going to transfer. And the kid didn't either. The kid believed in what I was telling him. The kid never once came in my office and said, Coach, you messed this up. I said I messed it up multiple times. He never did. <laughs> you know, like, like when people say it's all about your mindset, situations like Ryan Troutman's, it kind of was. Um, you know, how many kids nowadays with the transfer portal would have left? Yeah, and if there was one day if he just – Yeah, and if, if there was – at any point he stopped believing in himself or in you – it, it probably wouldn't have happened. He probably wouldn't have taken that jump. You know? It wouldn't have happened. And, you know, I'll say this got nothing to do with his podcast, but I'm going to say it because I love it and it's one of my favorite stories ever in coaching. The kid, when he was the right-on-right right matchup guy, one of our bullpen catchers got hurt. He had a slip disc in his back. And we only had one bullpen catcher. So let me say it that way, our bullpen catcher, not one of our. And Ryan Troutman came to me and he's like, Coach, I'll warm up everybody. Like, I got no issues. Okay. And at that point, I was like, yeah, you're the right-on-right right matchup guy. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, man, that's cool. Like, you want to warm up? Go ahead. Well, well, you know, then he became our closer, you know, five, six weeks later. And I'm like, Trout, man, like, you don't need to warm everybody up anymore, dude. Like, we'll find somebody else that can sit down there, dude. Like, you don't need to kill your legs trying to warm everybody up. And he was like, Coach, I'm warming everybody up. Like, I'm our best dude down here. The other guy's hurt. And Stanek, he warmed up everybody for the entire season. <laughs> he would he would warm up the seventh and eighth inning guy before he got loose. That is hilarious. Like oh my gosh. You know, you know, you do things like that, and your teammates love you. Yeah. You know, your teammates want it for you. Um, yeah, you know how to win the heart to, of your teammates to do stuff like that, and your teammates yeah, like all be was, pulling for you. His character was through the roof. Yeah. Let me go back to uh, <laughs> that's an awesome story. But I want to I have so much more to ask you, and I, we probably don't have a ton more time. Um, I want to ask you about momentum on the mound, um, which which seems like a just a it's a little bit of an oxymoron on the mound because you can't momentum like to me is like the run and gun type of drill. What exactly is momentum on the mound? What does the guy look like who doesn't have it? How do you go about creating it? You know, when you're going from a standstill position, whether you're from the stretch or a windup, at some point you're you're kind of right, you know, over the same spot on the mound. You know, how do you create momentum from uh, from sort of a standstill? So the the quickest and easiest way for me to say this, I, I'm going to steal from somebody else. I'm not going to take credit for this, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, Randy Sullivan told me one time. He said, "Jason, man, like when you're talking about creating momentum, just tell them about a sprint." And I go, okay. And he goes, use this analogy. He goes, there's three ways that you can start a sprint. You can jog and sprint 
like start a sprint at a certain line. So you can start five yards back from the dude you're racing, you jog to the five-yard start line, and then both of you take off, okay? You can be the guy at the starting block who's in a very good running position like a track person would be. Or you can be the guy at the starting position that's just standing there, you know, doing nothing, muscles are loose, nothing's already contracted, and you're going to run. And he said, Jason, which dude's going to win? And I said, the dude that gets a five-yard start. He said, you're right. Which dude's going to finish second? I said, the dude in the good sprinting position. He said, you're right. I said, which dude's going to finish last? I said, the dude who's standing there doing nothing to prep his body. He goes, okay. That's how you teach momentum. And I go, well, I can't teach him to get the five-yard jog up to the line. He goes, okay. Can you teach him to create some momentum by how they sink into their back leg? I go, yes. He goes, that's the dude getting the five-yard jump. He goes, can you teach a dude to his first move is to co-contract and contract the back leg and start getting force into the ground and underneath the rubber instantly. I said, yes, I can. He said, well, then that's the dude that's at the starting block. So everything kind of goes off of those, excuse me, those three things. So, like, I'm going to teach a kid, hey, man, what feels comfortable to you that can actually get you going and get your body moving a little bit? So the five yards build up. Right. You know, is it, is it hands over the head? Is it stepping to the side? Is it stepping to the back? Is it, you know, a false step or a tiny little step or whatever, and then really kind of like swinging yourself into that momentum or into that hip hinge, whatever you want to call it, um, with your back leg? Okay, well, if none of that feels good, that's okay, man. Like, we don't have to create momentum in that way. We can create momentum by literally putting more force and energy into the ground. And one of the cooler things that I've ever had happen that's a great drill for this that a lot of people can do um, is one of my former pitchers from Walford came back to throw with me at Lander and right before he went off to Pro Bowl. And he reached down in his bag and he grabbed out this little, like a half moon. And I was like, Yo, what is that? And he was like, yeah, I took a foam golf ball, Coach Burke, and I cut it in half and I just took duct tape or whatever and rolled it around it so it doesn't tear anymore. Like, it's obviously made out of foam. And he's like, I put it in my cleat every single day during catch play, and I just feel myself compress that foam golf ball, and that's how I work on growing roots and increasing my momentum. Where does, he put, it? Put Where does it, he put it in his cleat? He'll, he'll put it somewhere between the, like, um, arch of his foot and his heel. Um, but I think it's different for every guy. I think you've got to figure out what keeps you in the ground longer. Um, you know, for years you would watch some big league teams, you know, they would use a rosin bag for the same thing. Um, you know, I went to watch a bunch of minor league teams a long time ago, and I didn't even realize what they were doing. That shows you how ignorant I was at that point. Um, but they'd take the rosin bag, and the big league coach or the minor league pitching coach would be like, hey, dude, just step on the rosin bag and throw. They were doing the same thing. They'd just slide the rosin bag underneath their cleat. And they'd be like, yo, I'm going to feel the rosin bag and keep pressure on that rosin bag as long as possible. You know, I used to take a screwdriver, and I would put it up against the rubber, and I would push it down in the ground as far as I could, and I'd just be like, hey, Jeff, keep pressure on that screwdriver as long as you can, and just throw. Don't worry about anything else, man. Don't try to think about five different moves. Just get the first move right and watch how much it affects your delivery. And, you know, I think there's a million different unbelievably cheap ways for guys to do this, and my guys aren't afraid to make a mistake. They aren't afraid to, you know, hey, coach, I'm trying this. You know, how cool is that that a dude came back and took what I had and made it into a better drill? Um, 
you know, like that, it was really, really cool, man. And what did I do the next day? I went out and bought some foam golf balls and chopped them up and handed them to my <laughs> <laughs> and, and half of them used it and half of them didn't. And, yeah. and I'm okay with that because it doesn't help everybody. That's an interesting coaching point, and not we want to get too far into this rabbit hole, but just uh, the maturity of Jason Burke at however old you are, 35, 30, what are you, how old are you? 37. 37. Uh, I'm 35. Uh, but the maturity of a 37-year-old Jason Burke compared to probably a 25-year-old Jason Burke, where maybe you would have forced everyone to do it, and now you're okay with that, uh, with just half your guys doing it, is something that's we, that's probably another podcast altogether. But an interesting coaching point and something I think a lot of young coaches should hear and, and would do some good just to know that, you know, no matter how great something is, it may not work for everybody. Um, so, so if I were to define momentum, and I said to you, if you said, Jeff, what's the definition of momentum? And I said, based on what you just said, it is trying to create as much, or, or how do you create momentum on the mound? It's, it's trying to create as much momentum, as much force, as much uh, power from the time of basically from the leg lift on down the mound, I'm trying to get as much force moving toward the plate as possible, trying to stay in my legs as much as possible, trying to use the ground as much as possible. And yeah. so momentum, when I said, like, how do you create momentum from a standstill, it's, you know, using everything from maybe even your, your rocker step on through to get things in motion and to kind of compare it to those sprinters to try to give myself that five-yard five running head start. Yes, absolutely. And I think – you know, a great way for people to think about it is I'm trying to stay on my back leg and ride it as long as I can ride it. So, like, I'm not trying to triple extend my back leg to produce energy. I'm not trying to go, you know, like like a side bound would be an okay but not a great example of it, whereas you want to ride that back leg as absolutely long as you can ride it and keep that back foot in the ground as long as you can while producing force because as soon as that back foot comes up, rotation is going to start to happen a lot of times or you're going to jump upward as opposed to jumping towards the catcher. Okay. Well, we talk about rotational power. That's probably the one that uh, that is the easiest to picture for people that are listening to this. Um, the sequencing is, is the mechanics. Uh, when I'm thinking about this stuff, and a lot of stuff you've talked about, I, I keep just thinking in my mind about, having a medicine ball, and, and you see a lot of things. If you follow baseball uh, strength accounts on Twitter or Instagram, you see a lot of things now where, like, a lot of off-season training is throwing the crap out of medicine balls. If you have something like that, Coach Burke, if you have a, a, you've got to have a stable wall, obviously. You don't want to throw that into, like, a lot of walls in your house. Um, but if you have the right kind of wall to be able to throw a med ball or if you can go to, the, to a gym and do it somewhere – does uh, something like that, having a med ball, which is obviously a lot heavier than a baseball, does that sort of force you to create all those things? I mean, that, that sort of makes you create some momentum, it would seem like. It would seem like it would increase your rotational power, and it also seems like it would probably naturally kind of fix some sequencing issues, even though your arms slot may not be exactly the same, but th I mean, it, that's what, that's what's happening in my mind. Am I, am I right or am I off base yeah, on that? I think, I think you're spot on. It gets back to earlier. We were talking about intent based training and I think med ball training like that is great. Um, just like I think intent based training is great. I intent based training would be the, would the be, running, yeah, would be a running guns. You're trying to throw really hard very often. Um, I just don't think you can only do one of those. 
Um, you know, so I don't think you could entirely base, okay, I'm going to learn how to throw harder off doing these med ball drills up against this brick wall or cement wall. Um, I don't think you could entirely base, hey, I'm going to learn how to throw harder and become a better pitcher by only throwing hard and having all intent based. So, like, I think you've got to be a good mixture of it because I think it all, it all helps. It all brings something to the party, and especially if you're unaware of where your leaks are. So, like, rotational training to me, is about throwing med balls. It is about getting explosive. It is about rotating harder. Um, but it's also about rotating later, and it's also about core stability. So if you're a younger kid and you're a 14, 15, 16-year-old, listen to this, or a dad of one of those, um, or a coach of one of those, you know, I would argue that you need just as much, if not more, core stability training and being able to co-contract your muscles, which means contract them at the, at the same time, you need more of that training or just as much of that training as you need the explosive med ball training because your stabilizer muscles are probably not great. Um, so, like, you need to create an unstable environment where you have to stabilize them. So, like, if you have, like, a water bag, you can train with a water bag where you have to stabilize the entire time. Um, if you don't have that, that's okay. Um, you could do, like, a regular plank or bridge exercise and have somebody, like, slapping your arms to where now it's an unstable environment. Um, you know, there's a million different ways that you can create that state unstable environment. You take two med balls and put them underneath your hands and get in a regular, like, top of a push-up position and have somebody lightly slapping, you know, your arms. Shoot, you can get your J-bands out and strap them on and put them on your arms and somebody slap your arms as you do some of your J-band exercises lightly. Like, anything that forces you to co-contract to stabilize is, is a good thing. Um, you know, I think it, it, helps, it helps guys control the rotation as opposed to just rotating out of control. Interesting. I'm going to ask you a couple of weird questions uh, yep. <laughs> before, before we call it a day here, uh, but just some things that I've uh, been writing down as we've been going through this. Uh, first of all, this is probably the least of the weird questions. How much, um, and, and these can be, you know, they don't have to be super, super long answers, but just kind of things that I was wondering about, thinking about. How much is mobility and flexibility a part of all this? Uh, you kind of mentioned the, one of the guys that has uh, a little bit of a lack of mobility within his hips and his thoracic spine, his, his lower back. Uh, well, yeah, basically lower half the back. Um, how much? How much should young pitchers be working on their flexibility, or is that stuff that can that will come with other drill work they need to do? Like, should they be doing like yoga for their hips? You know, to make sure they're they're good and loose and flexible in high school. Is that something that's natural, or, or what do you think about that? No, I would I would say absolutely. I mean, I think you know I think it's a huge part of it. And the best way I can describe that, and hopefully be applicable to everybody, is you don't want your flexibility and mobility to be a reason why you can't get in a position. So, like, if I'm coaching a kid, the the worst thing that can happen, in my opinion is for me to be like, man, this kid just can't get in that position. Like, because then, I hate to say it this way, but it kind of takes the coaching aspect away from it. Because then you've got to address what I call a hardware issue, um, which also stole that wordage from Randy Sullivan, <laughs> you know, to where, like, the software is his mind. The software is, you know, him being able to feel his body moving in space, and for me to be, hey, man, I want you to get the ball a little closer to your head, him to be able to figure out a way to get the ball a little closer to his head before he rotates. The hardware would be, man, the kids' hip mobility, teach spine mobility just aren't good enough to do that yet. 
So there's no reason for me to coach that kid in that because he's just going to get frustrated. And he's just going to think, well, nobody can do this. I can't do this. Like he's asking me to do something that is impossible for me to do. Um, you know, so it almost takes away coaching for a little while because you have to fix the hardware problem, which is the mobility of wherever or the flexibility of wherever. The other thing I'll add to it, and I don't know how true it is, but I'm going to say it anyway, is I've read a lot of stuff that would say that your flexibility and mobility, somewhere between 75 and 90% of it is determined by the age of 18. Well, if that, if that stat is true, then 75 to 80% of your body, body's capability and flexibility and mobility is determined before I even touch you. <laughs> so, so, like, you know, to me, even if that's not true, I'm not running the risk of those studies being true. So if I'm a 14, 15-year-old or I'm coaching, you know, 12U or 14U, I'm already starting on that stuff. And I'm already helping guys with that because there's no studies out there that would show that, that stuff is not good for young kids. Right. Whereas there probably are some that would say strength and conditioning or not for growth plate issues and things like that. You know, there's nothing like that on flexibility and mobility out there. Um, you know, I, I, if, if I was – if I was to do it all over again, I probably would have done gymnastics a little bit as a kid, knowing what I know now, because I think gymnastics could have helped me become stronger in certain joints and, and more mobile and more flexible, and I probably would have been a little bit better pitcher and athlete in college because of that. Interesting. All right, next weird question. I once recruited a guy, and again, another guy that passed. You'll hear a lot of stories like that from me. Uh, recruited a guy, and he said no. <laughs> uh, but I went to a camp once in Tennessee. There was a guy with the funkiest arm action that I could ever, I've ever seen. I can't even describe it to you. I brought the video back, and I showed it to the other assistant coaches, including our pitching coach, and, and we all watched it for like 10 or 15 minutes speechless, like uh, just on, on, a, uh, uh, on a loop, just kept watching and watching and watching his little bullpen session. Because uh, I couldn't describe this arm action, I had to show it, and, and the, the pitching coach is eventually like, "I don't know, I, I it's hard, I don't, I don't know what to say about this. I, I really have never seen anything like this." It was like when he got to the back of his arm circle, his wrist kind of did some really, really super funky stuff. Um, but he was eighty-seven to ninety. <laughs> He's like a five-eleven <laughs> right-hander who was eighty-seven to ninety in his bullpen, and he was unsigned. So. Uh, you know, just like most guys that I saw at that time that I thought could help us in any way, I, uh, we offered him, and, and he said no, and he went to another uh, school in our conference, actually, at the time, and um, they fixed his arm action. He, when we saw him, you know, later on, he had a – they, they got rid of the funky wrist thing he was doing, and, and, and Burke, it was – I can't – funky's not even the word. It was, it was messed <laughs> up. I mean, it was, it was weird, weird as can be. But obviously things were working because he's on ball 90 miles an hour. Um, they fixed it, and he was 86, 88 for the rest of his life. Yep. Um, is there anything that would tell you as a coach, that's weird, but don't fix it? That might be part of the reason you're as good as you are. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say one other thing. I'll give you one other example. There's another kid I coached at one point. He was a fat right-handed pitcher. We'll just say it. Uh, he, was, he was heavy. He, he's not a good body guy. He threw pretty darn hard, uh, and, and but he, and he he was a freshman in college. Threw a lot of innings for us. Uh, I won't even tell you where he was, which college it was. But between freshman and sophomore year, we were like, "Hey man, this is the whole staff. Like not just not me. Hey man, you you gotta like try to you gotta try to get your body in better shape. You gotta come back in better shape so your body's gonna hold up 
Well, he lost a good bit of weight and some velocity left with the weight. Is there, <laughs> is there any point as a coach that, that you would say to a guy, or is there any way to know, hey, that, that arm action is funky. I really don't, I don't know what to think of it. I can't like it. But, it, but it, maybe it makes you who you are, and I don't want to coach it out of you because I'm afraid, you, you know, one of your tools is going to leave. Or a guy that's overweight, you know, would you ever say to him, like, let's get stronger, but maybe not focus on losing the weight because the weight might be part of the reason you throw us hard. I don't know. I'm not a pitching guy. I just need you to answer some of these questions. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think a lot goes into both of those questions. I mean, we'll start off with the overweight guy. I think it's does the weight hinder him in any way? So, like, if he is so overweight that his chest push cannot get out over his front knee, then, then yeah, I think he's got to lose the weight. If he's so overweight that it is drastically affecting his mobility and flexibility, you can't help it while the weight's on there, then, yeah, you got to lose the weight. If the weight has any, any way, shape, or form put him in a more injury-prone position, I think you've got to address the weight. If, it, if not, I mean, there's a lot of pitchers that have gotten away with, and I'll say it that way, gotten away with, being overweight, being looking out of shape, even maybe if they're not, um, and been very successful. So, like, I've made the same mistake of telling a kid they need to lose weight, and they probably didn't. Um, you know, and, and it hurt them. They lost some velocity. Um, you know, I don't think that the old mass equals gas <laughs> statement, <laughs> statement applies, applies to everybody. Um, but there is something to be said for that. I mean, we're talking momentum, rotational power, and sequencing today. I mean, you can create more momentum with more with more mass, right? Like you get a heavier bowling ball going down a hill, it's going to pick up more speed, right? right? So there is something to be said for that, but you have to be able to get the momentum going. If you're so overweight that you can't get it going, then, yeah, you got to address it. So, like, I don't know that you're ever going to know without – trial and error a little bit on the on the, if the kid need, needs to use lose weight. Um, you know, I take some guesses, educated guesses now maybe you would say on if a kid needs to or doesn't need to instead of just saying they all need to. Um, whereas I used to just say, hey, man, you're out of shape. We gotta, you got to lose 10 pounds or whatever. Um, so I've, I've kind of eased up on that or changed a little bit on that. Um, as far as the arm action goes, you know, I always ask myself one simple question arm action-wise. And a lot of big league teams are still on the spectrum of we have to fix it. Um, you know, I just ask myself one simple question, and that's it. If I don't fix this, does it increase his chance for injury? If the answer to that question is no, then I let him be himself and let him be what probably got him recruited in the first place. If the answer to that is yes, I fix it, even if it's going to cause, even if it has a chance to cause less velocity or less movement, because I think in the long run you'd rather avoid the surgeries and decrease your chance of having arm issues than increase your chance and maybe have a flash in the pan of being pretty good. So to get back to the kid with the funky wrist stuff, like, yeah, he lost velocity, and I don't know that we're ever going to know without seeing the full picture of the videos and things of him post and pre if it increased or decreased his chance to, to be injured. Um, you know, there are certain things with an arm action that I think increase chance of injury. Um, I'll try to hit them really, really quick. Number one is guys that are late timing-wise with their arm action for whatever reason. Maybe the arm action is too long. Maybe it's a stab and go, and it, maybe they inverted W, whatever. 
um, you know, and their shoulder rotation happens before their ball's up. I think any study you read would show that that forces external rotation to happen earlier than it wants to happen and increases their chance of injury. Um, the next one is when rotation happens, is their ball inside 90 degrees, which means they're a 90 degrees angle from their elbow to hand and elbow to the end of their shoulder when they start to rotate. If it's inside of 90 degrees, it usually decreases their chance of injury. If it's outside 90 degrees, it usually increases their chance of injury. The next one would be what does your hand look like at release and how deep or how out in front is release of the ball. And the reason that has to do with it is if you just took your hand and stuck it out and started rotating your hand at full extension of your arm, you're going to feel your shoulder move a crap load. Um, so imagine those positions have different impacts on your shoulder at 90, 95 miles per hour, or 100 even for a big leaguer, and how far your arm is stretched out at release of that implement or the baseball would also have a, an impact on that. So I'm looking at all four of those things, and does that part of your arm action affect those in a negative way? If it affects a lot of those in a negative way, I'm probably going to coach them out of it. If it doesn't affect those in a negative way, I'm probably going to let them be themselves. Can you really coach a kid to release a ball a little earlier or a little later? I feel like that's – I'm, like, trying to picture myself doing that, and it feels like it's going to be incredibly awkward it, to try to change. I think it is hard. I do not think it's impossible. Um, the first thing I would do with a kid that has an early launch, and that's what you would coach them out of most of the time, is an early launch. They're launching it over their foot as opposed to out in front of their foot, um, which most studies would show that maximum ball speed – for release is going to happen somewhere out over your foot. A lot of studies are going to say somewhere between five to seven inches out there. Um, you know, the first thing I do is I get them five to seven inches away from a wall. I put their foot, their stride foot, five to seven inches away from the wall, and then I just have them go through their delivery and touch that wall. And I will have them do it multiple times. Um, you know, your breaking ball release point is going to be shorter than your fastball release point, but a lot of times I don't get that in depth with them or that nerdy with them. Um, if you're looking at a Rhapsody or a Trackman, it would show that. Um, but I think just feeling that position gives them a better chance. You know what I mean? Like feeling, hey, this is where I'm trying to get as opposed to it just being some mythical unicorn of, hey, coach told me to get out in front more, so I'm going to try to feel out in front. Um, you know, I think just letting them actually feel, oh, well, crap, that's five to seven inches out in front. That's not that much further than where I feel like I'm releasing it now. Um, you know, and with younger guys, I'll have them do that right before they throw. So they do all their arm prep, all their body prep. They'll touch the wall a few times, five to seven inches out in front, then they kind of have a little bit of an idea of where that's at prior to actually throwing a baseball. Um, again, I do think that's a hard thing to teach, um, Jeff, but I do think you can teach it, and I think it's just making them more aware of where that is. Interesting, really interesting. Um, last question, probably the weirdest of them all, but it's something I'm just <laughs> curious about. You mentioned early in the podcast that there's probably a limit to everyone in velocity. You also have mentioned in this podcast that you feel like you can you can basically teach just about anything that's out there, any, any sort of deficiency a guy has. Uh, <laughs> this isn't anything more than probably me, me just being curious. Do you think that you could take a guy who has never played baseball, he comes on your campus, he spends four years with you, he does everything that you tell him to do and more, and he does it with a really, you know, like an excited mentality, like he wants to do it. He's going to put all the effort in. He's going to do everything you tell him to do exactly how you tell him to do it. Do you think you could take a guy who has never played and has no uh, reason to believe that he could ever be good at throwing a baseball, do you believe you could take a guy like that and in four years with everything included, weight training, any kind of drills you want to do, 
weighted ball stuff, uh, blah, 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 from freshman year to, to, to senior year? Do you think you could take a guy like literally Burke off the street and, and have, that, have that guy throw 90 miles an hour with a baseball if he would just do anything you'll tell him to do and maybe he has some sort of athletic ability about him? Number one, I would love to try that. <laughs> um, but, but number two, the, the quick answer, and a lot of my colleagues that I pick their brain would probably shoot me for saying this because they would 100% say yes. Um, the quick answer would be no. I don't think I could. Um, you know, and the reason I would say no, whereas some of my colleagues would be mad at me for saying that because they would be like, Burke, like, I know you don't believe that. The quick answer for saying no would be there's just so many variables to throwing 90 or to throwing hard in general, and there's so much self-exploration. Like, I think you have to have some idea of what you're doing to be able to get to that point. And, you know, I think it's just so hard for a kid that's never played the game, never thrown an implement. You know, maybe they've played another sport. Maybe they've been a – you know, a wrestler or a lacrosse player, but they've never actually thrown something other than with the stick of lacrosse. You know, there's just so much other stuff that goes into that. And I just think that it would take a large amount of time to really dive into that. And I don't think everybody's body is is made and designed to move like that. And I'll, I also will say this, I think some movement patterns are harder to fix than others, even though I think they're all fixable. You know, it'd be one of those situations as a coach where you would be like, where do I start? And, you know, I would start with the lower body, but ultimately, you know, it would take a lot of trial and error, and it would take a lot of that athlete being cool with, you know, trying some really crazy, funky things, and there'd be no guarantee that it would work. Like I said, the first thing I said was I would love to do it. Um, cause I think it'd be a lot of fun. And I think I would learn maybe more than that kid would learn along the way because I don't get to do that. Um, but, but the quick answer would be no, I do not think I could take somebody that's never thrown <laughs> and, and, you know, never really done anything with baseball whatsoever. And in four years develop them into a 90 mile per hour arm. I think a lot of guys that I pick their brains would tell you, yes, they could. I, I just, I don't necessarily buy into that. Because it almost seems, and I don't mean to to say this like to discount anything anybody does, but it just seems like there are so many guys at lower levels of baseball, meaning like outside of like the top half of Division One, right, where guys are just throwing really hard. And obviously they didn't, they weren't throwing really hard when they got there. So it almost seems like, I guess anybody that that does the right things maybe can get there. I, I don't know. It's just, you know, I think about uh, the the sort of experiments that Major League Baseball has done with, like, getting uh, – there was the there was a movie by this, I forget, Million Dollar Arm, where they got some guys from India that played cricket, I believe, and they yep. taught – you know, no, they had never – they didn't know anything about baseball. It was probably a different scenario than a kid, like, from the U.S. Uh, who maybe just – I don't know, ran track or something or played soccer and like never, just never played baseball. Um, what about a guy that, what about a guy that was like 78 miles an hour in high school and like was a pretty decently big kid, uh, you know, maybe a 6'2 guy who was fairly loose but just didn't have the arm speed. Do you feel like you could take that guy and turn and make that guy throw 90 
in four years? Legitimate question. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think I would have a shot at helping that kid achieve that. Um, Again, assuming that he would do everything that you would tell him to do. Yeah, right? yeah, I think and he wanted yeah, assuming, to. Do it. The, the, the biggest thing that I would say, and I'm stealing this from one of my former players again. So I have a former player from Walford. His name is Jacob Kondrabogan. And Jacob throws anywhere from 95 to 100 miles per hour now with the Nationals in AA. He'll probably be a big leaguer this year or next year if he can stay healthy. Um, you know, me and Jacob were texting one day, and he sent me some video of it. And this was this past season with the Nationals. He's like, hey, coach, just wanted to send you some video. You know, always trust your opinion of what you see. Let me know if there's anything you see. So I sent him all these notes back. Hey, man, I see this, I see that, I see this, yada, yada, yada. I'd probably put my focus on this. Obviously, you're in the season, not trying to make big mechanical changes during a season, yada, 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 whatever. Okay. Well, he sends me back the response of, Coach, number one, I think you're dead right, okay, with, what, with your analysis. But number two is I think if I fix those things, I think it will allow me to throw a tick harder. But I think I'm already throwing hard enough to get to the big leagues and I think if, if I do those things, Coach, I think it's going to increase my chance for injury a lot. And I just text him back, you're right. You're right. And, you know, I think with this kid you're talking about, you know, 6'2", whatever, 200 pounds, 78 miles per hour, I think there would be a great chance that me or a lot of other pitching coaches could, get, could help him get up to 90 miles per hour in four years. My question is what would we have to do to get him to that? And, you know, if you increase the chance of throwing harder, you increase the chance of getting hurt. I don't think there's, you know, people ask all the time, why is there more Tommy Johns nowadays? Well, it's because people are throwing harder. Um, you know, you get in a car and you drive down the road at 60 miles per hour instead of 40, you've increased your chance of having a wreck. Yeah. So, like, you know, I think it's very, very simple why we're having more Tommy Johns. I don't think it's pull-downs. I don't think it's running guns. I don't think it's, you know, any of this stuff that everybody really, really likes to blame. I think it's just people are throwing harder. So if you have more people throwing 95 now than you ever have, yeah, you've got an increased chance of injury because they're moving faster. Um, you know, same thing with this made-up kid we're talking about. You know, <laughs> as he starts throwing harder, he is going to increase his chance for injury. And, you know, I would say there would be more of a red flag for me that the kid may get hurt than there would be could we help him get to 90 miles per hour. Um you know, I, again, it would have a lot of factors to go into that, but yes, I would absolutely take that bet of taking a six foot two, two hundred pound right in a pitcher from seventy eight to ninety, way more than I would take the other bet of off the street, of smoke <laughs> off the street to ninety miles per hour. Um, you know, our soccer coach here at Lander loves to come out there and hit and throw. I wouldn't dare say that I could take him and make him a ninety mile per hour arm. He's never played baseball in his life. You know, he's only played cricket. Um, but but he enjoys us, we enjoy him, and he, he likes coming out there having a good time. But, you know, if I put a gun on him right now, he's probably 70 miles per hour. I don't think I can get the 70-mile-per-hour Englishman to 90 miles per hour. Yeah, that's good. It just it, it, Pitching is such a – as a non-pitching coach, pitching is just such a different world to me than, than hitting. Uh, it almost seems like it's not far-fetched to say that you could take – one of the best pitching coaches in the country as far as developing velocity and put that guy in a Division three program and recruit a bunch of guys that throw 78 miles an hour but that, like, have a little bit of athleticism or looseness to them and, like, develop a staff that could legitimately have a bunch of 90-plus arms. Like, that doesn't seem far-fetched to me, no. which is just a – it's just a – It's not such all. a weird thing to, to think about and to – 
you know, you can't do that with hitters. You, you can't just grab a bunch of guys that look like Division three hitters and have put a great put them with a great hitting coach and turn them into a bunch of Division one hitters. You know, within a couple of years, that's not going to happen. But it, pitching is just such a different world to me, and I just it's such a cool thing to talk about. Um, I have really enjoyed this conversation. We've probably about reached our limit, uh, unless there's anything else you want you want to throw in here right now. No, that's that's all I got, um, Jeff. And I I love doing these and, and love teaching and love learning and um, you know hopefully some people will take some things from this and 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 go explore and learn on their own with it and um, you know that's you know I think that's the best way to do it is you know listen to a lot of people and hear a lot of opinions and you know take a lot in and grab this from one guy and that from another and you know, kind of try to marry them together. I don't think one person has all the answers for velocity or how to use data or, you know, how to spin a baseball. You know, I think it's a, you know, a complex, you know, complex movement. And, you know, I think the more people you can learn from, the better. So hopefully uh, some people get some things from this. And we didn't even get into, I, I thought we were going to have time to get into, uh, you know, developing just mechanics and velocity as well as spin, as well as getting into tech. We literally got into one of those three things. Uh, so I think that that just means we're going to have to do this again. Maybe the next podcast, if you'd be up for this, uh, we can try to schedule one where we just talk about developing spin, and we can get another one we just talk about using tech, if that if you'd be okay with that. I don't know how long those would be, or uh, but I'd be interested in that for sure. Absolutely, and I'd love to do it, and uh, we'll set that up and get that, uh, get that on there as well. All right, Coach Burke, appreciate it very much. Uh, best of luck to you guys in the upcoming season, and we look forward to having you back here on Figured Out Baseball for another podcast in the not-too-distant future. Yep. Thanks, Danny. Appreciate it, man. All right. Take care.